Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'm your host, Clint Murphy. My goal is for each of us to grow personally, professionally, and financially one conversation at a time. To do that, we will have conversations with subject matter experts across a variety of modalities. My job as your host will be to dig out those golden nuggets of wisdom that will facilitate our growth. Join me on this pursuit. Most of us hate conflict. In fact, many of us avoid it altogether. The problem is we create conflict debt. The conflict doesn't disappear. It just builds, festers, and then blows up. Today I talk with Leanne Davy about her book, The Good Fight, and she shares how to manage conflict and engage it to create stronger, more productive, and happier lives and workplaces. This is also one that you are going to want to try at home. Enjoy the show. Good morning, Leanne. Welcome to the Pursuit of Learning podcast. I'd love to get started with what's motivating you in life and what are two or three things that you want to make sure we get across to our listeners in today's conversation? Yes, what motivates me in life is is sort of a two-parter. Many years ago now, in my second year of university, I realized that helping make work a more meaningful part of people's lives was what was going to drive me for the rest of my career. And about, I'm going to say 15 years ago or so, I got more specific on that and realizing that helping people achieve amazing things together was really what I was interested in. So not individual high performance, but how do we make teams and collaboration effective? Because to me, the way the world is going is that things are too complicated to do on our own. So that's what gets me out of bed in the morning, helping people achieve amazing things together. And what do I hope we cover? Well, I would love to cover some of the things that get in the way of (laughs) of us achieving amazing things together. You know, when we get into conflict, when we get wrapped up in our own crap, those sorts of things. That's more my specialty is all the stuff that gets in the way uh, and, and how to clear the path so that we can collaborate effectively, do the things that need to be done. And so what we're gonna talk about is using productive conflict to do that. And so a lot of people avoid conflict. We're going right in and we're going to talk about how to do it properly. So let's start. And this is all relative to the book, The Good Fight. So let's start the conversation with conflict debt. While organizations require conflict, most of us run away from it. And that turns out is a bad thing. Can you tell us more about that, Leanne? That is a very bad thing. I think many of us fear conflict and find conflict a very aversive idea. But really, the most aversive thing is when we try and avoid conflict, because then what we're doing is we're putting a lot of energy into going around the problem, trying to suppress the problem, letting the issue fester, uh, letting grudges and resentment build up, and ultimately, we are unsuccessful in maintaining that conflict debt. And either we have a, a big, uh, you know, payday where we <laughs> where we have to pay the piper, and that's very painful, or we end up having to declare bankruptcy in that relationship and either quit a job 
leave a, a an intimate relationship, all these things, because we've let stuff pile up, we've avoided the conversations we needed to have. So this is something that I spend a lot of time doing, helping people understand why getting into conflict debt or trying to avoid conflict is much worse for people who don't like conflict because the conflict is going to be uglier, more emotional, have a greater cost. So the, the metaphor I use is that if we can do productive conflict, it's a little bit more like flossing every day and a lot less like needing a root canal every once in a while. So that's what I'm, I'm trying to help people think about is if you don't like conflict, that's a great reason not to get into conflict debt because conflict will cost you a lot more the compounding interest and penalties <laughs> that you'll pay. So if you don't like conflict, don't get into conflict debt. So at the, when we're looking at the organizational or team level, what are some signs that we're in conflict debt? What does it look like to the everyday colleague in the office? Let's start with the organizational. And the number one sign that your organization is in conflict debt is that you fail to prioritize. So it looks like anyone at any point telling you that this is these are our seven priorities. <laughs> that's a really good sign. And if it's 17, all the better sign. Um, so that's a good sign that nobody had the guts to have the hard conversation about what's most important. Nobody was willing to say this project or this department or this person is going to have to wait for a bit while we put something else first. So that's a great sign that your organization is in conflict debt is that you have too many priorities. Another would be that things bite you in the butt a lot. So we don't actually do the hard work of exposing risk, talking about and, and being explicit about assumptions we're making. We don't like that kind of uncomfortable tension on our work. We just, we build a plan. We want everyone to just nod their heads and go along. And so another good sign that you're into conflict debt is that you're doing a lot of firefighting. Uh, you're, you're having to get yourself out of the ditch a lot because what that means is that you didn't have the conflict up front to avoid those kinds of problems. At the team level, it's going to be all the things that you're accustomed to. So doing workarounds around a person who isn't performing. So other people having to take up the slack. Uh, it's going to look like eroding trust, uh, frustration among people, and people losing their tempers or becoming impatient. All those interpersonal trust-based things and workload issues, unfair workload issues would be another sign. So we see different kind of evidence, but conflict debt really does affect us at the individual team and organizational levels. And so when you, you say the classic, classic example of you're doing too much work relative to your peers, that being a sign that someone's been afraid to talk to that underperformer or challenge them or push them, so they just give you more work and say, you just do more. Yeah, we're seeing it a lot at the moment because of the shortage of, of people in the workforce. So I'm hearing managers just say, well, better to have a warm body than no body. And so they're allowing and tolerating poor performance, allowing somebody to not pull their weight and then expecting the good performers to be the ones who will make up for it. Of course, then what happens to you if you're a team leader and you're pulling those shenanigans, it's your good folks who are going to leave because they've got options. And what you're going to be left with is the poor performer, which is probably what you deserve. And that's the impact at the team and organizational level. But what you talk about is the bigger impact is to us individually in our personal, whether it's workload, 
development, treatment at work. What does that look like for people? For most people, it looks like going home at the end of the day exhausted, not feeling proud of yourself because you realize that you haven't advocated effectively, that you've let people walk all over you. For many of us, it looks like the Sunday scaries where we're having an anxious response on Sunday nights, dreading going back to work. For many of us right now, it looks like I don't want to return to the office because then I'm going to have to face this conflict at head on, literally head on uh, every day instead of kind of working from my remote office and pretending it's not there most of the day. So, you know, stress, bad mental health outcomes, bad physical health outcomes, disrupted sleep, uh, all the coping strategies that we do to kind of soothe ourselves, whether that be, you know, eating things we shouldn't or just watching YouTube for hours on end. There are profound effects. And then, of course, the problem with that is then there are ripple-on effects to our families as well. You're short-tempered at dinner. You don't have the energy to take your kid to the park. Uh, so the the effects of conflict ed are really profound. And, and in some ways, are we almost saying we're our own worst enemy when it comes to it? Because the each of us plays a role in creating that healthy conflict environment. Yeah, exactly. And so if you go back to this idea that if you don't like conflict, your best strategy is to have small conflicts frequently, as opposed to letting it build up into something, you know, explosive or extremely uncomfortable or something that will threaten your relationships or your even your job. So uh, it is a self-inflicted wound in that sense that if we let it pile up, if we let our resentment build, those sorts of things. And, and at the organizational or team level, if, as a manager, if you are continuing to dilute your workforce over far too many priorities, you're going to pay in terms of lower efficiency, those sorts of things. So yeah, I, I do believe conflict debt is a self-inflicted wound. Okay. So the now the three ways that you talk about we can get into it, avoidance, opposition, and friction. Can you take us through those and we'll start to deep dive into. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, avoidance is simply, you know, the whole concept of the undiscussable. <laughs> so we're like, oh, we don't talk about that. Here. It's like, we don't talk about Bruno. We, we don't talk about that issue here. Oh, no, yeah, nobody talks about that. That's a real bugaboo with the boss. So d- don't even say it. Um, so that's just completely avoiding the discussion. Avoiding the opposition is, oh, no, we talk about these difficult topics. We just make darn sure that we only talk about them with people who agree with us. (laughs) We see this in organizations all the time. The way you'll probably notice it is certain roles or functions that aren't brought to the table until very late in the game. So we're going to, engineering is going to design this product because we think it's cool and we love what it can do. And we're not even going to ask sales if they're interested in selling this or have any buyers. We're just going to plow through you know, if we build it, they will come. And then at the very last minute, we're like, over to you sales to sell this thing that you never wanted and never had a market for. So uh, avoiding the opposition is, you know, keeping the conversations in places where people are going to agree with you. The other, of course, very obvious example of this is Facebook. Lots of difficult issues get talked about on Facebook, but in this echo chamber of people who are going to agree with you, if somebody disagrees with you on one of these values-based kind of things you post on your Facebook, you unfriend them. And so that's just a form of conflict ad. It's not that that conflict isn't there. It's just you're avoiding the opposition. So that's that one. (laughs) Avoiding the friction. 
is a little bit of a different scenario. Maybe you are talking about the issue. You're even talking about it with the right people in the room. But every time it gets a little hot, a little uncomfortable, you, and this is another line that your listeners will recognize, we'll just take that offline. And, and we sort of bury the issue in a deep, dark hole. My friend Karen Wright told me a story. It, it's just this fantastic story of a, an organization she was working with that was uh, owned by a Japanese organization. And the chairman came over to Toronto to have a meeting. And uh, he was sitting in on the meetings all day. And people were doing this line as things were getting a little heated or the conversations were a bit uncomfortable. People kept saying, okay, well, we'll take that one offline. And at the end of the day, the chairman who didn't understand this North American language of conflict debt said uh, like, oh, okay, great. So I would really like to attend this offline, whatever this meeting is you call offline. (laughs) Of course, then everybody was like, whoops. And I just think it's such a great example of how um, we avoid friction and we'll have a conversation superficially and never get to the root issues or never actually solve the conflict. So we can avoid the issue altogether. We can avoid the opposition to the issue, or we can avoid friction on the issue. Either way, we're not getting to a resolution, and therefore we're stuck with that debt for a little longer. And you know, my ears perked up when you were on opposition and you were talking about Facebook, because really it's social media in general, right? Whether it's Facebook, whether it's Twitter, we tend to be in these big echo chambers. And Leanne, have you started to look at the impact of conflict avoidance at a country level? Because you're really starting to see this, right? Like just intense polarization. Yeah, I have a friend. Her name is uh, Dr. Ann Wilson, and she's a social psychology researcher. And she's done some research on this, this polarization, what's happening at the national level. And what's interesting is she's found that when we do that, when we pull apart from people who we see as in a different group, and of course, we think about that kind of as binary, us and them. And what she's found is that if you ask each group their opinions on a wide range of social issues, then what happens is uh, we grossly overestimate how radical the other group's positions are. So we aren't in, in contact with them. We don't have direct access to how they feel about whatever these issues are. And what we do is we really overinflate how extreme their positions are. In doing so, then we have more justification for hating them more or pushing them further away. So Dr. Wilson's work is really interesting in looking at some of these sort of national level implications of getting into the conflict debt of avoiding opposition. And what it is, is our positions and our knowledge about the opposition to our positions is going down. And our view of what's out there and and the spectrum of opinions is very skewed. And that's a terrifying thought. We're, We're fighting with somebody ascribing to them a position that they don't even hold. Uh, and that's a scary thing. I mean, most of us probably think alike on 95% of things or 90. And yet that 5% where we're different, we just blow it up and or just assume that we're different on all 100% of things when in reality, that's likely not the case. It's such an interesting societal impact. Sorry, I like to divert because I, I onto that because I, I see it a lot. Yeah. And that's the risk of how we've really gotten into profound conflict debt on some of these. And, and it's interesting because you know many people would say to me 
there's too much conflict. I'm like, no, there's not. There, there's a lot of yelling and screaming, a, a lot of people standing firm, yelling their position at the other person. But conflict is a struggle between incompatible and opposing needs, demands, wishes. And we aren't actually coming together to struggle together, which is what conflict would require us to do. We're standing separately, demanding. And so this act of actually having conflict, we're not. Social media and and even media is allowing us, we've got this group watching this channel feeling this way, and this group watching this channel feeling a different way. There is no coming together in which to actively go through the act of conflict. It's actually all held at bay by, imagine two armies that have never left their base camp. That's what we are right now. We are two armies in our own base camps, you know, talking a lot about why the other is evil, but we haven't engaged. (laughs) We, we uh, We haven't actually found a place to either broker a peace uh, or, you know, come to a resolution. Which, interestingly, that seems to be the piece that's missing with social media, is how do you bring both sides together in a healthy, reflective way? There, you know, if I'm Facebook or Twitter or whatever social media platforms out there, it seems you want to be the first to solve that because that could be a very lucrative way to bring both sides together, although maybe they benefit from the polarization. Yeah, I was going to say, this is my big fear right now, is that nobody would want it, because we're feeling so righteous in our indignation at the moment, both sides feeling righteous in our indignation. We don't even want to engage. You know, uh, they're not worth me talking to. If they believe that, I like, right? I write them off. There are so few people right now with the energy to engage or or even, you know, who have a low enough level of cynicism that they are willing to engage. Right now, we are very happy in our own camps, uh, you know, patting ourselves on the back for our moral positions, our moral high ground. I, I could build that social media site and I'm not sure who would come. It's interesting. I intentionally, over the years, I had, you know, developed a a set of Facebook friends. And when the uh, 2016 election happened, it became clear to me that some of those people had different political beliefs than I did. And I intentionally kept them. I wanted to see it. I wanted to hear how they were talking about things. And what I've noticed is I never see their stuff in my feed anymore. Absolutely never. So I don't know. I actually should go back and check. Did they leave Facebook? Or is it just that the algorithm is no longer feeding me their content? But a few times I tried to engage just with questions. I wanted to understand where they were coming from. But in 2022, those are absolutely 100% gone from my feed. So even my attempt to stay open to people who think differently than me was unsuccessful. They're gone from my feed. I think on some of my feeds, it's actually construed me to be the opposite view that I would normally take. So I get almost entirely the other side. But then I find, I find, hey, wait, I'm slowly starting to evolve into that direction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, that's the scary thing. You realize how repeated exposure to uh, a biased kind of message, it's amazing how all of a sudden you start to you know, you start to fall into that way of thinking. They they don't use the expression, drink the Kool-Aid for nothing. You know, that's the scary thing about social psychology and how the psychology of groups works is, you know, we can actually 
over time and over repeated exposure, and then also in in shutting out other messages, well, you know, our perspectives start to change, and that's uh, terrifying. <laughs> terrifying and interesting because it does show that you know I might have thought I was staunchly on this side of the fence, and now I'm saying, well, well, wait a second, on this aspect. I'm on this side of the fence, but on this aspect, I'm on that side. And I can see how these two differ and maybe here's where we should be and how do we get there? Yeah. And I think based on our comment before about polarization, the other thing that we need to get to is there isn't a fence. (laughs) This is our country. This is our community. This is our, there, there is no fence and it really is a continuum. And there are people all the way along that continuum. It just has been made to feel like there is a fence or a wall or a a moat uh, between us, but there isn't, right? And understanding that our perspectives on a wide variety of of topics have more nuance and more gray area and more variance than we would be led to believe by the people who want us to think that there are two camps and one big fence. Oh, great, great way to say it. So The reason we avoid conflict for most of us, I mean, this stems right back to our childhood, right? And we often have the Carl Jung quote on the podcast, until we make the subconscious conscious, we'll forever be led by it and call it fate. And you go back to your childhood and whether it was grandma or mom or dad saying, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything. Or, you know, mind your business or kids don't talk. How do we get wired to avoid the conflict. And then knowing that, how do we unwire ourselves so that we can enjoy it or or at least do it? And then how do we teach our kids so they don't become conflict avoidant? Since I wrote The Good Fight, I even got another piece of data that makes our conflict avoidance and our conflict debt even more understandable. And that goes back before our childhood. In fact, it goes back 15,000 years. So I discovered a quote from the anthropologist Margaret Mead. And somebody was asking Margaret Mead, when was the first evidence that humans actually advanced through cooperation and collaboration and and harmony and getting along? She said, well, they have a 15,000-year-old femur bone, human thigh bone. And that bone has evidence that it was fully fractured, broken all the way through and fully healed. And she said, the only way that that is possible is if somebody protected that person from predators and brought them food. So that person would have been dead without food or water, without protection. And so we have evidence from 15,000 years ago that the people who lived and the people who survived were the ones who got along with one another and who cooperated. So even before we're born, we have 15,000 years of evolution baked into us to get along, especially with our own tribe. And then we're born into uh, parents who do exactly the things you said. They say things like, if you can't say anything nice, don't say anything at all. So the first thing I I say when I share the Margaret Mead line is, so don't beat yourself up if you don't love conflict. (laughs) Like everybody whose ancestors really loved fighting in the cave got chucked out of the cave and eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. They're not, they don't have ancestors today or they don't have progeny today. So don't beat yourself up if you don't like conflict. We are built to not like conflict. Then we're socialized to not like conflict. So if we're going to unpack this conflict baggage, and realize that organizations and even healthy relationships of all different types require productive conflict, 
And first, we're going to have to reflect on what are those voices? So I talk about the little voices whispering in my ear as my itty bitty shitty committee and how important it is to me that I understand that they're there, that I know when they're whispering at me, and that I deliberately say, no, thank you. (laughs) I don't need that bad advice. Um, Mind your own business. Terrible advice. Really terrible advice. You know, how much predatory behavior has gone on in our world because others just kept minding their own business? Not my issue. Um, Just terrible, right? So understand what it is. Reflect on it. And then I think the biggest opportunity is to think about what is worth fighting for. And in an organization, we do that exercise by helping people understand their role, how their role brings something unique to a team, how their role likely is advocating for different stakeholders than other people at the table, and how if they aren't bringing that message, sharing that perspective, fighting for the people who are counting on them, then no one is. And if we can start to frame the positive aspect of what is worth fighting for, then we can sort of overrule the itty bitty shitty committee and tell them, yeah, that's nice. I can't mind my own business because if I don't talk about our customers in the West, that New York City head office is going to ignore them every time and, and I need to fight for them. And somehow when we can understand who we're fighting for, what we're fighting for, and and depersonalize it a little bit, um, it's not me being petulant. It's not me being annoying. No, it's me fighting for things that I'm here to fight for. (laughs) Then I think we have a much better shot of normalizing conflict and, you know, feeling as if what we're doing is contributing. It's a positive contribution to fight for things that matter. So I'll give you a silly example. It's not a silly example. It's a, it's a true example. I was working with a food manufacturing company uh, and asking these questions. So I said to the head of sales, you know, what are you fighting for? He said, well, we have three major grocery chains in the country, and it's my job to make sure that we're, you know, differentiating our product to really fit with them and, you know, coming up with ways that our meat fits there. <laughs> so one of their customers was really working on organics and like, we need to be doing all these cool raised without antibiotics. And this other customer is trying to go into the, you know, easy prepared food. So we need to find ways to marinate our food and do it so it can be ready quicker. And, and so his job, what he was fighting for was he was fighting for their buyers, their customers to help them differentiate. And that was, he was very passionate about that. He, he was happy to fight for that. But as he was talking, the head of operations was kind of, it was it was a very funny look on his face, kind of this smile, a laugh. He said, "What what are you laughing at?" And he said, "Well, as I'm listening to him say, I'm fighting to differentiate and to make this compelling for our customers. I'm laughing because I'm here to do the exact opposite, to get consistency, to make it efficient, to make it scalable so our plants are are really efficient." And it's like, "Okay, now you see." And they're laughing because they had really They'd had a lot of friction, the two of them, really often disagreeing on what the right call is or or rolling their eyes at a call that the other had made. And now all of a sudden they understood, first of all, that wasn't friction. It wasn't, you know, anybody being a jerk. It was productive tension. And it was the other person's job to advocate for those things. And when they could sort of see that, then they were so much happier in future meetings to really pull hard on, okay, but you know, if we could differentiate in this way, if we could do this packaging, 
you know, I know it would cost a lot to change the line, but we'd be able to get a higher price for it. And we'd be the number one supplier for this grocer if we could do that, right? And those sorts of, well, you know, what if we could do that, but only do it, you know, shifting the line, doing it in, you know, bigger orders. So we don't have to shift the line as often. Would they be able to, uh, you know, take more inventory if we could do that? You know, and then all of a sudden, it's two people problem solving about how we optimize the whole. And so this idea of getting over our conflict aversion by being more in touch with what our obligation is and, and who we're fighting for and what we're fighting for is what we do with every single team we work with. And it's so powerful as soon as it clicks for them that, oh, you're not a jerk, but you are here to advocate for something very different than I am. And in the end there, you were saying something, I've been in a manufacturing environment and, and that's where you tend to see the fight between the two sides is sales ops, right? Is you mentioned them saying, hey, I recognize the cost of line switching and changing and what that'll do, but I could get a bigger order to offset that cost because there's a switching cost. And if I can get a big enough order, you can justify the switching costs. So that becomes a very powerful way to look at it. Well, just go back to metrics and just say, the problem is if they can get there, but there's, you know, terrible divisive siloed metrics in the organization where, you know, that deal, yeah, if we can get a higher margin, then our our margin number holds and still looks good. But you know what? The salesperson's probably held accountable for the top line and the ops person's probably held accountable for the efficiency and so the ops guy's still getting penalized. Even if overall it's great for the company, why are our metrics so terrible for creating, you know, optimized behavior? So that's another problem we're fighting against. So often our rewards and our measures are do not promote teamwork. They're like, nope, I gotta keep the efficiency up. I'm looking at scrap rates and I'm looking at how many hours the line is down for. I'm not you can get that higher price. I'm not getting anything for it. It doesn't help my bonus. And so, you know, we have this added complexity that when our measurement is so siloed, then no wonder people are acting. It just is intelligent for a human to act in their self-interest. So if we've got our measures all wrong, why are we expecting this concept of an optimal solution with these productive tensions to work? Well, it's an, it's one of the number one things, right? For a company, incentives drive behavior. And so if we're incenting people to be in a conflict situation through the metrics, hey, I'm going to measure you on your productivity and I'm going to measure you on revenue, regardless, I'm not going to even say, hey, 60% of your bonus as the sales guy is profitability of what you sell. 40% is what you sell. For the ops guy, 60% profit, 40% cost, right? Like how do we tie the two together through an incentive plan? Exactly. Yeah. So, you know, we have a lot of things to overcome, but in my experience, if we don't start with this empathy and understanding of what everyone at the table is fighting for, we're not going to get anywhere. If we start there and then say, okay, that is what I'm fighting for. But if we're going to, if I'm going to yield to the optimal solution, if we're all going to yield to the optimal solution, then, you know, show us that we're rewarded for coming to the optimal solution. So we got to start with understanding this concept and having more empathy for the fact that the optimal solution is almost never 
um, optimal for any one function, <laughs> right? And if we have that insight, if that penny drops, then we can move to, okay, what are all the things getting in the way? So sometimes it's rewards. Sometimes it's, well, then where is the forum for us to make that call dynamically and together? And often there isn't. The salesperson goes out and sells something, comes back, throws it over the fence to ops and says, here, deliver this. There was never a forum to look at the you know ultimate profitability or efficiency or effectiveness of that order. So sometimes it's metrics that get in the way. Sometimes it's, we just don't even have a forum, a place, a meeting, a conversation where we can reach something optimal. So that's another thing that gets in the way a lot of the time. So if we can get to that understanding of this concept of productive conflict and and optimizing decisions, then we got a bunch of things to solve for after that (laughs) to, to set the organization up to function effectively in that way. And that's one of the things that I, that I read that I was interested in, and I know it's fast forwarding a fair bit, but you talked about the concept of when we're dealing with that problem, we immediately tend to want to just jump to the solution and say, oh, well, here's how we should solve it. We should do X, but we really haven't got to the bottom of the issue. And that tends to backfire on us. Can you take us through that? We'll start to work through how we actually get to the root cause and and get into the meat. Yeah. So if we go back to uh, the Itty Bitty Shitty Committee, I'm going to add another line to it that that I didn't add to it in the book, but that line would be, uh, don't come to me with a problem, come with a solution. <laughs> and I'm adding that. To the, and you know, while I, I understand where that line comes from, and I think it's great when you are um, going to talk to your own manager, I think when you go talk to your manager, it's great to come with a potential solution. But unfortunately, we do that in cross-functional teams. And when we do it in a cross-functional team, a whole, it triggers a whole bunch of bad things. So first of all, we, we come with a solution that is in somebody else's area. So it's, it's not ours to fix. If it was ours to fix, we just would have fixed it. But instead, we come and we say, you need to do this, or, or we should change this. And when we do that, it triggers a really negative response a lot of the time. So first of all, because we aren't in that function and we aren't experts on that function, the thing we propose is usually pretty harebrained. It's usually not good or it's not applicable or it would never work in practice. The other thing we do is we signal that we don't actually think that you, or I don't think you can solve your own problem. So let me come in here and tell you what you need to be doing. So it seems condescending. So all sorts of bad things happen. So we don't want to walk into a situation, propose, a cross-functional situation, proposing a solution. Instead, we want to walk in saying, you know, here's what I think, here's what I'm noticing, here's some evidence, this is what's happening, and so here's what I think we need to solve for. So actually getting the common ground around the fact that have you diagnosed the problem accurately? seeing if your colleagues also have identified this problem or given the evidence that you share that they come to understand that that's a problem. And then, you know, thinking about who is best positioned to solve this problem. So asking questions like, you know, how are you thinking about that? What do you see as some of the opportunities to make that better? What would we have to solve for if we wanted to change that? So instead of coming with this sort of strong assertion or statement of we need to do this or you should do this. Nothing worse than somebody starts shooting all over you. You should do this and you should do this. Um, but instead coming to the table with, here's what I'm noticing and, and here's what I see that as an issue that my sense is we need to do something about this. I, I think we need to solve for this. 
It's going to just completely change the tenor of the conversation when you do that. And because what we really want to do is we really want to get to, before we get to an answer, before we get to a solution, we want to have common ground with the person that we're having that conflict or conversation. Let's, we, we can almost change it to just that we're having that conversation with to make sure we're on the same page, that we're actually trying to solve for the same thing. Because often, as you pointed out, I think I'm trying to solve for A, you think you're trying to solve for B, and we're fighting. And neither person has said, hey, what are we actually, what are we trying to solve for here? Yeah, and we're fighting and we're being very dismissive, like, your solution will never work. That'll never work. Well, it'll never work because it was never meant as a solution to the thing we think needs to be solved. (laughs) So, of course, it's not working. So, yeah, I, I think that is the vast majority of conflicts I see in teams is where they're trying to solve for two different things. And if only we could have a conversation about, well, what are you trying to solve for? Oh, okay, yeah, that's fine. I was trying to solve for this. And instead, understand that it's like doing algebra with two equations to solve for the the unknown. We tend to have two equations. My equation of what I value and what I'm trying to solve for is different than yours. But if we knew that there were two equations, then we would have enough information to solve for, all right, what's one solution that works in both of our equations? And that's where you talk about the idea of if... I'm sitting down and you and I are having the conversation. What I want to do, and this is also one of the things I love about how Jordan Peterson debates, is before I share what my truth is and what I want to tackle, I have to make sure that I understand your point. So, okay, Leanne, what I'm hearing you say is this, do I have that right? And then you have the opportunity to clarify and say, oh, yeah, you do have that right, Clint, or no, here's a subtle shift. And then I say, okay, so that's what you're trying to solve for. We now, we now have that on the, and, and you call this the two truths. We now have your opinion on the whiteboard, and then I'm able to say, here's my opinion. Here's what I'm trying to solve for. And the other person, if we're doing it right, should say, okay, here's how I'm hearing it. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. So humans, if you go back those 15,000 years, you know, we operate on reciprocity most of the time. And just reciprocity doesn't work so great when you start with, okay, you go first. <laughs> so the best way is to go first yourself and to really try and you know what Stephen Covey calls seek to understand before striving to be understood. So you're trying to understand what is their truth. So how can I say things that are validating to them that make them feel like I'm listening and I'm interested and I'm curious? How can I ask questions to get a better sense of what's underneath their perspective, what they're trying to solve for? And then how can I say that looking for confirmation, looking to see that, yes, I I have that right, and ultimately looking to have them feel like, oh, okay, this we're actually allies here because this person's trying to understand me. Once we do that, if we go first with that, there is a very strong pull for reciprocity for the person to be willing to do that for us. And then to say, okay, you know, if if that's your truth, um, that's really helpful. Um, Here's what I'm trying to solve for. Here's where I'm coming from. Here's the stakeholder that I'm thinking of when I'm thinking about where we go from here. It's very, very, very strong demand characteristic for the person to listen to you once you've spent so much time listening to them. 
unfortunately, we just we try and elicit reciprocity by going by you know sharing our perspective first. <laughs> that tends not to be very effective. And and do you find a lot of problems or let's even call it conflict debt arises simply from people not having the conversations? And I can give an example. You're at work. I work on a finance team, right? Accounting. And so we are a a service group, right? We provide a service to the rest of the company. And you'll have someone on another team and they'll ask for something. And someone on my team will come to me and say, Clint, like that ask is totally irrational. A, I, I think we're always headed down a path when someone starts with the other person is totally irrational. It's like, well... You probably haven't talked to them. And then they say, you know, here's what they want. And here's why it doesn't make sense. But often the first question will be, well, have you talked to them? Do you understand why they want it? Have you asked these questions? Do you find that a lot of people just skip to that last step of the other side's irrational? Not even side, but, you know, the other person. Absolutely. And the busier we get and the more we feel overwhelmed by our own priorities, then all of a sudden when there's an ask from somewhere else, it's like, I don't have time for this. Uh, like, th- And that's ridiculous. Why do they even want, right? We did, it, The more overwhelmed we, it, you know, if we have the afternoon free, we're like, well, okay, I'll take a look, right? But we don't have the afternoon free. We have many other things that, you know, people who have more pull on us uh, that create more fear in us have asked us for. So this, you know, dude over in the other department making this ridiculous request, first of all, I don't feel beholden to that person. I don't feel empathy for that person. I don't actually understand the request. So of course it's going to get relegated uh, because it. how could it possibly be as important as these other things of the people breathing down my neck and things that I do understand and we've just never given it a chance. It could be something incredibly important. It could be something insightful, something that would benefit finance and you could share with other stakeholder groups. But if you don't take the time to understand, okay, help me understand what you're looking for. How are you going to use this? Um, what are you hypothesizing that you want the data for? Who's asked for this? You know, those sorts of things. We, we don't engage. We just balk. Yeah. And, and so, because it happens all the time. Probably each time it happens, we want to have that training exercise with the colleague. And so it may be saying, hey, have you done these things? Have you you listed a great one? Who's asking for it? What's the priority? If I take that on, I have to drop something. Have you talked to Ted, Tina about what has to get picked up or what has to get dropped? And just work through the list. So now you're clarifying expectations, priorities, and that seems to be one of the things that gets missed. Yeah. If I could give this 15 minutes, you know, what would be the most important thing you need first, right? How do we shrink the task back to the most essential thing as opposed to just taking it on wholesale? Yeah. There's so many questions we can ask that create strong communication, that increase understanding between us. So then our actions are are targeted and prioritized, and, and that makes a ton of sense. And so treat each time that happens as a training exercise for that colleague. So they start to be like, because then they almost start to recognize, instead of thinking it's conflict, it just becomes, 
having a conversation with the person on the other side of the company. Yeah. And that's the most exciting moment for me when I have people practice different ways of broaching the situation. So I'll take them through questions like that. And then at the end, they'll just say, but that wasn't conflict. Like, exactly. <laughs> and, and like, if I can get you there of not even recognizing that absolutely it was a struggle between incompatible demands, right? They wanted this right now and, and you had other priorities. That's conflict right? It's just, it didn't feel like it because it was a conversation where we made space for one another's goals. We empathized with where we were coming from. We actually got to what was important kind of beneath the surface. And when we have productive conflict, most people say, well, that isn't conflict. I'm like, yeah, it is. And it's important conflict. If we aren't having conflict about you know, how to prioritize our time, you know, we're going to be very inefficient and ineffective. It is conflict. It's just, Healthy conflict doesn't feel awful. And so our, our baggage about conflict tells us it has to feel awful to count. And like, nope, <laughs> productive conflict can feel really good. And actually, I find productive conflict's a little bit like having a therapeutic massage, right? It hurts in the moment, but afterwards you're like, oh man, so good. <laughs> That's what we're looking for. Yeah, because otherwise you just carry the tension in your neck and your shoulders because you're not saying it instead of just having a conversation. And that's where you get into trouble, right? So now we're going to rewind back to earlier in the book is the having a little bit of aversion to conflict is okay. But when we go into full on avoidance mode, that's when it gets dangerous for the company, for you, for the team. And you had a wonderful chart that showed four quadrants, and I believe it was cooperation and assertiveness. And those drove in, into four categories, and there was an optimal category, is, and I may be misconstruing by calling it the optimal one, where you're both, you're comfortable with the, you're being both assertive and you're being cooperative at the same time. And so when you look at those four quadrants, which ones don't we want to be in? that'll get us in the most trouble and which ones do we want to be in and how do we move from one quadrant to another? Yeah. So that's the Thomas Kilman model. And it, yeah, I think the simple way of talking about the two dimensions is meet my needs and meet your needs. So it's a two by two, right? Are we meeting my needs, meeting your needs? Um, and so the, the whole idea of the Thomas Kilman model is each one of those conflict approaches has its time and place. So, you know, avoidance would be conflict debt. And what they would argue is, you know, there is a time and place to get into conflict debt where neither of our needs are being met. And I would say, in my experience, one of the places for that is when something triggers a very emotional reaction. People are, are coming in hot. That might be a great moment to say, you know what? I'm just going to sleep on this. Let's not have this conversation now. <laughs> Let let those, you know, neurotransmitters dissipate. Let's like let cooler heads prevail and we'll come back to that, but we'll come back to it when we're in a better position to or you know, some things I see where there's a fight brewing and there's no data and no evidence. It's like this is what I believe. Well, this is what I believe. Well, that's a good time to get into conflict at to avoid the issue and say, "Let's go away and actually get some data." Let's get some evidence and come back and have that conversation when we can have it, not just opining about what we think, but instead uh, to come back with evidence and what we know. So there are times when conflict debt may make sense in the short term. 
just like, you know, there are times when putting something on your credit card makes sense. You know, I'm going to buy this online because it's going to give me 24 hours. I've done this with airline tickets during COVID. I'm going to buy this online with my credit card because it's going to give me 24 hours to cancel. That debt is going to get me something that is worthwhile. Well, same thing. If we can avoid the issue for a little bit to come back at it at a better time. There are times when it probably makes sense to make sh- like leave it so that our needs aren't met, but the other person's needs are met. And that's a time when, look, this just doesn't really matter that much to me. And I know it matters a lot to you. So let's meet your needs in this case. You know, this is going to happen not only at work, but at home all the time. <laughs> you know, you're picking a restaurant or you're decide, you know, deciding what to do on a vacation. There's lots of good conflict and conflict debt in choosing vacations. So there are times when that quadrant makes sense. So that's the idea of the Thomas Kilman model is that there is a time and a place and compromise is right in the very middle. It's like neither of us fully gets our needs met, but both of us get some part of our needs met. I don't like that one all that much. I try and use it sparingly because I find just it's human nature for both people to then walk around carrying a grudge. <laughs> so Yeah, exactly. So Chris Voss, in his excellent book, Never Split the Difference, Chris Voss talks about that as, you know, if you come downstairs ready for work in your suit and you think the black shoes look better with your outfit and your partner thinks the brown shoes look better with your outfit, it is not a good answer to go to work wearing one brown shoe and one black shoe. (laughs) That is not a good answer. And I love that. Sometimes our solutions become very kludgy solutions, like one brown shoe and one black shoe. So I think be careful, be aware that compromise is a form of conflict debt. Often, we just, we we hate conflict. So we compromise on something. It's not the right answer. It's not the best answer. But at least it makes it feel like the conflict is gone in the short term. So be aware if you're somebody who doesn't like conflict, be aware of sliding into these positions of like, I'm just going to give in and not meet my needs. Or I'm just going to compromise to make this go away. Those are really not doing compromising deliberately because there is good compromise is fine. But recognizing that I'm doing these things not because it's the best answer or the right answer, but because it will expedite the path to not feeling this discomfort. That's that's a bad reason to to use any of those boxes. Let's say when you said that last one where I'm always just going to give in, the there's a book in the men's work community called No More Mr. Nice Guy. And the whole concept is that person who is just always giving in to their partner, right? Just yeah, exactly always accommodating. And, and it has significant downsides because you're never getting your needs met. So there's always at the back of your mind this constant as you said, grudge. Yeah, absolutely. Resentment. Oh, my partner never meets my needs. I resent them, but you're not vocalizing it. So it's almost your own, it's your own fault. You're putting yourself, and I guess in a way, you're putting yourself into a form of, of conflict debt because, right, you're never getting into conflict with your partner. You're just saying, Yes, yes. Yeah, it's really a misconception that healthy relationships don't have conflict. Healthy relationships don't have conflict debt. <laughs> Healthy relationships have lots of conflict because there's just so frequently a struggle between incompatible and opposing needs, wishes, and demands, even if it's just picking a TV show at night. Um, What you're going to have for dinner, and as I said, vacations are a great one. Finances. 
How are we going to spend our money is a very common one. You get one person in a relationship who, you know, just is is worried, wants to store away every penny they can, and the other's like, we need to live a little. You know, what are we saving this for? Well, that's conflict. And if we aren't finding a path through that, then the resentment is going to build. So a better way to look at it is healthy relationships have healthy conflict. Exactly. And Gottman, the relationship researcher, it's amazing. They did this study. I'm going to forget the exact details, but they basically did a study looking at couples and watching couples fight. And uh, they could tell within 60 seconds whether these couples were going to be together five years later based on how they fought. It wasn't whether they fought or not that predicted uh, whether a couple was going to last. It was how they fought. And did they fight with empathy? Was there evidence? And, and if their fights were derisive or unempathetic, they weren't going to last. But if they were, if they showed empathy, if they were interested in the two truths, then those relationships were much, much, much more stable over the long term. So that now is the one of the parts of the book that we didn't advertise on the cover, but how to save your relationship by learning how to have healthy conflict. We'll add that in, into the show notes. Yeah, you know those commercials, car commercials usually where it says like, don't try this at home kind of thing. I thought, well, you know what? Although nine chapters of the book are about how to have healthy conflict at work, I felt like I needed to create the try this at home chapter. So there's a bonus chapter called try this at home, which is about how do you have um, healthier conflict in your romantic relationships or your intimate relationships? How do we raise conflict resilient children? How do we have conflict more effectively in our communities and our volunteer groups and all those sorts of things? So yeah, it was really fun to write that and to just be really open at the very beginning that that my husband and I ended up in marriage counseling at some point early in our marriage because we were terrible at fighting and we just had not had good role models in how to have healthy conflict. And we needed to figure this out and learn it. So I wanted to share that story. I wrote the chapter and then I gave it to my husband. I'm like, how do you feel about me publishing <laughs> publishing the story of us going to marital counseling? And he's like, it's great. I was like, okay, good. <laughs> so he was very supportive. <laughs> now, do you really mean it's great? Or do you are you just trying to avoid conflict? <laughs> so... One of the things you talked about was when you're the type of person who this. And so you highlight that there are three different types of people when it comes to conflict. We have a person who thinks conflict is unhealthy and unpleasant, a person who thinks it's important but distasteful, and a person who thinks conflict leads to better understanding and outcomes. Can you take us through those three types of people and how we can move into the right camp? Yeah, well, I think it's natural that we've learned that for the people who really think conflict is hurtful. So there's people who have who have just never experienced conflict. They've just been told it's bad and they avoid it. And it's interesting because they they're judging it with no experience of it, right? It's like, you know, people who've never drunk alcohol but tell everybody how alcohol is evil or something. It's like, well, you've never tried it. You don't know what it is. So there's people like that with conflict. Then I think we have to be open and transparent about the fact that there are people who've had conflict experiences that are incredibly aversive. They've grown up in an abusive household. They've seen the damage conflict can do. So we have to have empathy for the fact that 
if those people are conflict avoidant at work, it's because they have a lot of real evidence of the damage that unhealthy conflict can do and no evidence of the benefit that healthy conflict can bring. So we have to be empathetic toward them. And then, you know, ultimately what we're looking for is people who come to understand that while conflict is uncomfortable, it's a kind of discomfort worth getting comfortable with (laughs) and becoming accustomed to because of the outcomes that are on the other side of it. So people come at it from very different directions. People who just want nothing to do with conflict won't consider that it could have a role. People who have really bad experiences with conflict and are scared to to try or or create a, a new adult relationship with conflict. So yeah, we have to understand there are strong individual differences. And I'm trying to bring that empathy to any team I'm working with that, you know, where they're coming from is it's for a reason. And if we can kind of meet them where they're starting from and help them understand the value, what they're fighting for, teach them things like the two truth that help them have conflict in a way that feels still polite, still kind, still professional, then we can move a long way into getting into that sort of third category. And so really it's bringing that empathy to the training on conflict. So it's showing them how it can benefit them in their life and workplace. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so important. If I just start by judging them, like, what do you mean you don't have conflict? You know, what a waste. You're, you're never going to you know, grow in your career. You're never going to have a healthy relationship. If I just sit in judgment, first of all, that's a form of conflict debt. Sitting in my judgment and, and you know, evaluating you from where I sit, that's failing to engage with you in your reality. That's just another nasty form of conflict debt. So it just makes so much more sense to me. Plus, the reason I wrote this book is that I'm a highly conflict avoidant person. I don't like conflict at all. I still don't. 50 years, and I still don't like it. But now I've learned that my life, I've learned that conflict debt is much scarier, much more aversive than the conflict itself. And so now I've trained myself to have the conversations much more like the flossing. How do I deal with it, you know, as a daily kind of experience? Because I just, I can't bear the idea of the root canal. But I always start with empathy for the fact that, okay, you know, I, I get this isn't easy. So what is the wiring that someone has if they really enjoy it? Where would that come from in their childhood? Yeah. So, you know, my husband and I do a lot of work with executive teams. And as part of that work, we do psychological assessments. And we do find about 30% of people who really love a good debate, a good tussle. And many people in the office, I find really value that hearty debate. And people think they're jerks and people think they're bullies. And it's interesting because the only thing that works with them is to pick up the rope and to, you know, to, to actually lean into the disagreement with them. And they love it and they become happier and they respect you more. And so, um, sure we completely understand the mechanism for where that comes from. Likely to some degree, it comes from one of the big five personality factors called openness. So people who want new ideas, want challenge, want to to change what they think about things. So we do see people who really love um, healthy conflict um, and, and they get mislabeled as, you know, either being 
bullies or aggressive or too direct. A lot of labels get put on them where no, really what they want is the intellectual rigor and the stimulation of coming at an issue from a bunch of different angles. They aren't emotionally tied to their position. A good way to spot a person like this is that they will actually change their position uh, when presented with a good argument. Um, So there are people like that. And often people who don't like conflict shy away from those people. They judge those people. They label those people. They give them nasty feedback on their 360 feedback. And they don't understand that what that person is after is some really productive conflict on these issues, a little bit more tension, uh, that sort of thing. So they're often misunderstood and, and definitely mislabeled. And I think you nailed it there with the intellectual rigor. One of the things I've tended to see, and whether it's the openness on the big five, or if you look at Myers-Briggs, a lot of people that fall into the INTP tend to be in that range. And it's really trying to get to the best answer or the best solution. And like you said, just trying to learn and challenge things. Yeah. Yeah. My husband definitely falls into that category. And he will just challenge things for the sake of it. And with two teenage daughters, it can make dinner really unpleasant for me who doesn't like conflict. But it's funny. One of the tips with people like that is don't use absolutes with those people because they'll have an entire debate with you just about the absolute. Like if you said something like, you know, murder is always wrong. They won't fight with you about murder. They will fight with you strictly about always. And so all of a sudden you're having this whole fight about all, is it like 99% of murders that are wrong or a hundred? And you're like, what are we even doing? So, you know, those, that's another way to spot those people is that they'll, they'll engage and fight with you, not necessarily even about the substantive thing that you were talking about, They'll pick some piece of it and go off on that just because they want to debate. <laughs> and you're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> okay. You know, I'm sure there's some situations of, well, what if you murdered someone who was about to murder a bunch of children? Okay. Yeah. Good. Sure. <laughs> but, right? Yeah. So, but that for people who don't like conflict, that is so aversive and so unpleasant. And you're like, did you really need to get your jollies by, you know, fighting me about that? And the answer is yes. But in that case, we need to do a better job of saying that doesn't work for me. Like, here are the people that you can go have those conversations with. Here, go to pub night with the folks who love that and leave me out, (laughs) right? But we, again, people who don't love the conflict tend not to say, you know, that's aversive for me. That makes dinner not fun for me when we have to have that kind of a, you know, what, a leaning in aggressive kind of debate about things. Can we save that for after dinner or, you know, whatever else? Can can you guys have that when I'm off somewhere else? So the other thing with our own conflict comfort and conflict needs is we need to do a better job of expressing those. We also need to do a better job. Like that person who loves a good debate seldom sets it up that way. Like, you know what? I I would love to make sure that we're being really rigorous on this discussion. Can we spend 30 minutes and just really play devil's advocate and and really work hard to make sure we've explored this? They don't do that. They just start playing devil's advocate and often with opinions they don't believe in. You're like, are you kidding me? You said the exact opposite last week. And, and people get carried away and all offended that they said the opposite thing last week. And they're like, of course I did. That's how you play devil's advocate, right? And so we just need to be more explicit about what's actually happening. I don't think we've been rigorous enough making this call. I think this is a decision that once we make it, we can't go backward. 
And so I would love for us to really lean in right now, you know, think about it differently. Everybody come at this from the opposite perspective. You've been coming at it. If we actually could articulate what we were doing in that situation, it would make it so much less aversive, but we tend to not be very good at that. So it's a good point because I'm often that person. And so what you can do or what I can do differently is instead of just being a devil's advocate, because at the end of the day, when you're doing it in the workplace, I'm not doing it for fun. I'm doing it because to your point, I really see us going in a direction and everybody's saying the same thing. And whenever I see that, I wonder, well, whoa, whoa, someone should have a different view. And if anyone's going to do it, I'll do it. But often it's in an area where I don't necessarily have the expertise or the skill. I'm just saying, anytime I see 10 of you going in one direction, I want to make sure at least one person's saying, hold up, what about the other direction? If we go that way, what might we regret? If we were to go this way, what would be good about it? And everyone's kind of looking at me like, you're not even usually chiming in on this stuff. Like, why are you? And and so I should say. Right. And it's simply because the intellectual rigor isn't there and you feel, you know, worried, anxious about the lack of rigor. I feel like I, I would love to create a set of flashcards for that scenario where you could just call it. Um, like I, I would almost call it like, okay, underbaked, underbaked decision, right? And then a set of flashcards. So the flashcards would be like a series of lightning rounds you could do. And and one flashcard would be assumptions, right? You just hold up the card and everybody's like, okay, what's one assumption that that's only true or this plan only works if this assumption holds true? Okay, everybody go around, name an assumption, Uh, a risk, an implementation challenge, a stakeholder that you haven't, we haven't thought about or we haven't talked about explicitly yet. Like what would be the flashcards to do this lightning round? to bump up the intellectual rigor of something that feels underbaked or where we haven't had sufficient conflict yet. I, I'd love to create that set of flashcards. Maybe I will. Yeah, when you do, let me know. I really like that one. So the, you know, let's now talk about how we actually do conflict right. And one of the things you say is the very first step is making sure that whether it's with our boss, whether it's with our team, that we have an open line of communication. Why is that step one? Because we're so biased as humans and we, (laughs) so just let me give you an example. Okay. So you're doing, you have a really big presentation coming up, super important. You're talking to your boss about it. And the boss says, I want you to send the draft to everybody on the team. And as you send out the draft to everybody on the team, you're already dreading, you know, what Frank is going to say. Frank, oh my God, Frank makes you nuts. There's so much friction there. It's so annoying. So you send out the presentation and of course, guess who responds first? Yep, Frank. Awesome. Yay. And so, oh God. And you open the email and you read it and it says, I got the draft presentation you sent. I caught a couple of mistakes. You're like, ugh. And I have some ideas for how to make it better. I'll call you at 10. And you're like, uh, I think I need a dentist appointment at 10 o'clock. Like, I think I need to not be here. And you have all these thoughts, you're like, mistakes, like, of course you did, so smarty pants, or like, you know, he wants to make your presentation better, why don't you do your own damn job before you start worrying about mine? You have all this negative crap going on. And and in fact, you've even read the email, your narrator in your head of the email was Darth Vader, because that's the narrator you use for Frank's emails. But now imagine that 
the second email came in and it was from Franny. And you just love Franny. You guys, you think alike. She's the one you always calibrate with after meetings, how you think that went. You would have sent your presentation to, to her anyway because you really value her opinion. And so she's the second to respond to your email. And her response says, I got the draft presentation. I caught a couple of mistakes. I have some ideas for how to make it better. And I'll call you a 10. And all of a sudden, you're narrating that email with a completely different narrator. You're like, oh, you caught mistakes. Phew, thanks for saving my bacon, Franny. And you have ideas. I know, isn't it so interesting? And now you're all excited for Franny to call you a 10. So this is the fundamental truth of how our brains work. We take neutral information, we pass it through our dirty filters, and we decide what the intent was. And because of that, if you are not establishing a line of communication, building trust before you need it, then when you need something, your colleague is reading your email with the Darth Vader narrator, not with the happy, friendly narrator. And all of those biases kick in. And the problem is that we don't get the exact same email from two different people. So we don't realize that this is exactly what's going on. I call it the mother-in-law effect because if your mother can say one thing to you, but if your mother-in-law said the exact same thing, you'd be completely offended. So we don't realize that that's the case. And so we think when Frank sends the message, we think we're completely, completely right to be indignant about his horrible, nasty email because we didn't realize that it wasn't the email at all. It was our narrator and our issues. So that's why you really, really, really need to establish trust and keep working on the trust and maintaining rapport and connection with people because in the moment of truth, that's what's going to determine whether you have productive conflict about you know what's the optimal answer here or unproductive conflict and get into a fight over somebody's irrational demands. We're going to dig into some of this because there's some keys there, but before we before we do, we'll digress on your mother-in-law effect because this is something that's very important to me. And I've made observations over time and I've shared them with young parents and one of the observations tends to be that as a family, you're almost always closer with assuming all else equal, right? Parents logistically similar distances, you're almost always closer with the wife's side of the family because a wife can take, and my statement has always been, it's simple. A wife can take advice from her own mom, but a wife cannot take advice from her husband's mom. And those are the two people who usually give, dad rarely says, hey, here's how you should parent your kid, (laughs) right? But, But moms always do. Yeah. I think we're going to have fun evidence of same-sex couples and things like that now in like, how does it play out and how do those things change? But yes, in in so many of the one female, one male, I completely agree. <laughs> and I think the other dynamic... Okay, okay. So it's not just me. Yeah. No, I don't think so. And, and you certainly hear stories about how no wife could ever be good enough for a mother's son, right? So it's it's hard to measure up. And yeah, so there's a lot going on in that dynamic for sure. Oh, I love that dynamic. So how do we create that open line of communication? One of the things you say we want to start with or, or the next step. So step one, we have to create that open line. How do we go about doing that? And then step two, we have to build the trust, which was something that you mentioned that tied to it so that the person who's reading it, we already have their trust. They don't feel like we're Darth Vader voice. So think about it in four layers, like a cake. So the bottom layer of trust is connection. 
and then credibility, then reliability, and then integrity. So we want to start at the bottom. It's really hard to trust somebody whose behavior is unpredictable to you. Because if we go back to the 15,000 years ago and how our brains have evolved, a lot of trust is just about predictability. Does this person behave in a way that you know makes me feel comfortable as opposed to surprising me? And even somebody whose behavior we don't like, if they always behave that way, we can trust them more because they're more predictable to us. So connection, just talk with people, find opportunities. So, you know, as we're returning to the office for those who've been away from the office, time at the coffee bar, time just asking about, hey, what are you watching on Netflix? What's the best documentary you've seen? Who are you cheering for in Major League Baseball? Like whatever it is starting to create connections and over time increasingly sharing information that's more personal that gives them a sense of you know who you are how you think about things like just what you just shared about you know I'm the one who always feels like I need to play devil's advocate like you could even say to somebody you know I'm getting tired of being the devil's advocate I really wish somebody else would play the devil's advocate well that's creating a connection helping people understand how you think the uh, credibility level is about helping people understand and feel increasingly confident that you're able to do your job. And so investing in your own skills and and sharing with people how you're investing in your skills, asking them their perspective on how to approach a given task. It's amazing. We trust people more when they ask our opinion on things. (laughs) So doing things to demonstrate and to flex on your competence is the next level. Reliability is about going a little further to make sure you have shared expectations and that you're following through on those expectations and having more milestones when you're just starting to work with someone. So they're not wondering, are you working on this thing that I need you to be working on? You're actually sending a note, say, I know this isn't due till Friday and it's only Wednesday, but just want to let you know I've I've started on it and I'm feeling good about it, or I've started on it and I'm a little worried. There's not as much evidence as we thought there was. Do you want to huddle up and just, you know, rethink our approach? That's going to make the person feel you're very reliable. You're on this. You're not going to leave them hanging on Friday. And then at the integrity level, you know, starting to demonstrate that you're willing to be vulnerable, you're willing to say difficult things to the person, that you keep their confidence, you don't share things behind their back, all of those sorts of things that are kind of early stages of demonstrating your integrity. So there's lots we can do at those four levels, always thinking about what can I do to make the person feel more connected to me, feel that my behavior is predictable? What can I do to make the person feel confident in me, feel that I'm competent? What can I do to make them feel like I'm dependable and they can rely on me? And what to do to make them feel like I have integrity and it's okay for them to be vulnerable in front of me? If we're constantly thinking about that checklist all the time, then we're going to have the relationship we need when that moment of truth comes, when the uncomfortable, when the the conflict comes up. We're going to have so much, if we go back to the conflict debt, we're going to have so much currency in the bank at that point that we're going to be able to to spend some of it because we've earned that, built it up over time. And so when we build that, we build almost like a trust bank that we can draw on because they'll, and part of it is really just them really knowing us. So they'll, they'll know that, Hey, he's not coming at this from an attacking me perspective. 
I know him pretty well. You should probably have a conversation with him because I don't think he's doing that. And and the but then we end up in that situation where even though we've done that, we end up in the conflict. And what you talk about there are we need to get at the facts, insights from information, emotions and values to get at the heart of the issue. So what does that look like, Leanne, when we're right in the heart of the conflict? Yeah, I think my favorite quote in the whole of the good fight is facts don't solve fights. And it's funny because after I wrote the book, I lost that line for a little while. And then I was building out a training program to go with the book and going back through the book again after having set it aside for a year. And I saw that quote and I was like, oh, and I saw that quote kind of at a time during COVID where we're fighting about vaccines and masks and all these things. And I thought, oh my goodness, isn't that the truth, right? I'm watching people put, you know, here is a vapor map of how, you know, what the vapor looks like if you are both unmasked or one masked and one unmasked or both masked. And like, dude, sharing that on somebody else's wall who doesn't believe in masks is not changing their opinion. And in fact, is just giving them, you know, a whole bunch of new nasty labels to call you, names to call to call you. So um, it was just such a great time for remembering like, oh, I wrote that line and I really like that line, facts don't solve fights. So what fights, if you're fighting with somebody, you're not fighting about facts. Um, If you're fighting with somebody, you're fighting about values and beliefs. And the mass debate is a lot about freedom and about individual rights relative to community rights, community obligations, responsibility versus privilege. It's all sorts of goodness wrapped up in the mask debate. It wasn't at all about how many particles of the coronavirus pass through which types of cloth, uh, which is what some people tried to make it about. And So in that case, just, you know, what I talk about, and this is a metaphor I've been playing with lately, is that you have to think about this situation as somebody guarding treasure. So, you know, people who treasure their individual rights and freedoms are going to build a wall around that treasure to protect it. And they're going to build that wall with bricks that are just facts things that they got. And of course, we know where they're going to get their facts, right? They're going to get it from the news sources that are giving them all sorts of reasons to say that masks don't help, they don't work. Even, you know, remember at the beginning, Fauci said, don't wear a mask. You know, I have this video clip, I'm going to show you of Fauci saying, you don't need a mask, put that brick in my wall and this brick and that brick. And so what we do is we go trying to pull bricks out of their wall. And you know, all they do when we try and pull bricks out of their wall is feel that their treasure is under more threat and build a higher wall and move more quickly to add new bricks to the wall and maybe fire flaming arrows over the <laughs> over the wall, right? None of that gets them to put down the drawbridge and actually let us in, right? So what we need to do is do a much better job of trying to understand what is the treasure that they're protecting. And the treasure they're protecting is about their values and their beliefs. Um, And if we can get them talking about that, first of all, they'll feel heard, they'll feel understood, and we'll have a much better shot at, at coming to some kind of an optimal answer. And if I can admit that, okay, so you know, what's really, really important in here is that you feel that your rights are valued, they're understood. And, you know, my truth is that 
We also have to do that in a way that protects the vulnerable people in our community and and looks at the rights of the the community in addition to the rights of the individual. You know, what are some of the things that would make you feel like your individual freedom is intact? And what are some of the things that you think we could do to to do that, but also keep some of the vulnerable people, you know, those sorts of things, right? So facts don't solve fights. Continuing to, you know, shoot cannon holes through their brick wall with your facts is not going to be effective. It's just going to make them want to fire back even more aggressively. So we got to get out of that. We got to get to understanding what is it that you value. And in organizations, it's so common, you know, what do people value? Well, a lot of times people value control and predictability. And so this change, it's not that they disagree with the change, what the new plan is. They just disagree with upending the old plan because they value the sense of control and the sense of certainty and the sense of what's coming next. And if we could spend some time empathizing with that, sometimes we don't even have to change the plan. We just have to show them that we get that lots of things are being upended that we're asking them to enter into an uncertain future. And just empathizing with that sometimes is enough for them to say, okay, I'm glad that you understand what this feels like. All right, let's try it. Sometimes it's understanding it and adding a few mitigating things. What if we were to do this? What would we have to solve for for you to be confident moving forward with this plan? But it's just, if you are fighting, it is not about facts. So stop wasting everybody's time and figure out what's the treasure that they're protecting behind that wall. And even you really nailed something right there. And, and you know, you look back on the last two and a half years, my gosh, it's been a while. And you realize how many things we did right and wrong, whether it's at a societal level, whether it's at a, a corporate level. And, and I'll take corporate as an example. A lot of shops probably had a COVID committee. Right. So in the COVID committee rolling out, hey, here's what we're going to do in this situation. Da, 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 da. And it's not necessarily that you came up with the wrong decision, because generally those committees do a fair amount of work, fair amount of research, lots of facts. But when it comes to the rollout, a lot of people may not feel that they were seen or heard. And what I'm hearing from you, when someone has their treasure and they have their wall, all they sometimes want to know is, do you see me? Do you understand me? Do you hear me? We're debating masks, but what I'm really concerned about is my personal rights and freedoms. And if you were to say, hey, do you feel like your rights and freedoms are being violated? That's a different conversation than should I wear a mask or not? And that person at work, when you roll something out, all they probably want to know is maybe have a conversation with us in advance. Ask us how we feel right? Because you're rolling out your strategy based on facts and science and what you've read and understood, but I've read all these other articles or I haven't read anything, which is quite often, right? Right. That's more common. I just know how I feel, <laughs> right? I know how exactly, exactly. And, and you nailed it with facts don't solve fights. And even more, one of the things, and I, I forget where I read it now, I think it was in a, a child development book is that when your child is having an emotional issue, you cannot appeal to emotion with fact. When your child's having a factual debate with you, you cannot debate fact with emotion. Facts meet facts, emotion meets emotion. And so when our team is saying, I feel a certain way, we have to, to your point, 
empathize with that feeling, understand what they're feeling, and you probably can still roll out the exact same plan. They just, they'll just have felt heard and seen. And not felt, like they, you, you don't. They will have been. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they will have been heard and seen. Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, sometimes saying, I think what managers don't do a sufficient job of is explaining their thought process. So, you know, one of the words that I find really interesting is just, that's not fair. The word fair. Well, there's no such thing as fair. There's no one definition of fair, right? So let's take a a dumb example that comes up all the time. Um, You know, someone in your family dies and it's like this person, you can be fair by saying everybody gets three days bereavement leave. It's fair because it's consistent. Everybody gets three days, right? Um, But then one person says, my family member who died, died in India. And I need to travel home. It's my mother, you know, and I need to travel home for my mother's funeral versus it's my great aunt and it's in the same city and I can, you know, pop over to the funeral and the funeral's on a Saturday, right? So is it fair to be consistent? Well, one definition of fairness would say it is. Or is it fair to be different but make it equitable? I'm going to give you the time it takes to go to the funeral and back or whatever else. So because fair is not simple, managers just don't talk about it. Instead of saying, I'm trying to think about what feels reasonable and fair in this situation. Here's how I'm thinking about it. I'm weighing this and I'm weighing that. And ultimately, because of this, that, and the next thing, I've decided to go this direction. But they don't. They just say, this is what I've decided. Instead of being more transparent about the thought process, being clear with people that There are really difficult things that you need to weigh and factor in as a manager that most people don't know or appreciate. But if we took a little time to say, I've heard you on this, and thank you so much for sharing that this is how you're feeling about this, or this is your concern about how this will play out. I'm going to go this direction, knowing full well that that's going to be uncomfortable for a period of time. Here's something I'm going to do to, or maybe help me figure out what are some of the things that we could do that would make it a little better? But we just, we avoid the discomfort and we just say, this is what I've decided, no discussion. And that's kind of like a dad thing in the family, right? This is my call, no discussion, because I said so. And managers do that instead of just saying, here's what I'm wrestling with. Here's how I took your perspective into consideration. Here's another perspective you probably didn't even know I had to take into consideration. And if we took you know, five minutes to actually help people understand our thought process, I think they'd feel, not only would they feel heard and understood, but it would increase the empathy with these other stakeholders that they hadn't been considering. Um, so a little more time on that would go a long way, I think. It's almost like your, your math class where you get points for showing your work, right? Too often we just go to the answer. That's a, it's a great, I hadn't even thought of that in, in all the situations I have with people on my team is just to sit down and say, hey, this is a hard one. Like you're asking for X and, and here's the challenges I'm having with it. And can we talk through them and, and why they're challenges? And, and then you and I, you know, we can come up with a, an answer that works it or doesn't, but at least we'll have had a conversation about it. Yeah, exactly. And so we've talked a lot about how to get through conflict and how to deal with it. Now, some ideas on how to avoid it altogether. And the first thing you talk about is, and I really love this one, I'm trying to think about how I can use it at work myself now, is the concept of the U-tool. 
and setting up clear expectations through the various levels in the organization or on your team. Can, can you bring our listeners up to speed on, on what the U-Tool is and how we can use it better? Yeah, it might be helpful to just share the real story of how it evolved. So I was working with a, a government department and this was a health department. And in the health department, this was, they were, so uh, I live in Toronto. So this is a Canadian healthcare situation. And what they were looking at is ways to change how uh, doctors are paid and more, more like sort of an HMO kind of model, like moving to teams of doctors and having patients that they're responsible for, but giving them incentive to keep people healthy instead of paying doctors for treating people who are sick. And so this was a big political, highly visible situation. And so what was happening is this team needed to write the briefs and write the information so the politicians who were out giving speeches could talk about their new policies. And this was the team of leaders, and they were complaining about the quality of the briefs that the analysts were writing. They're like, oh, you know, they don't have the right precedent. They don't have this. They don't have that. And so I just started kind of pulling on the thread with them and saying, okay, well, let, let's take this literal example of this politician who was at this event in this town last week. What happened? Tell me what happened. And essentially what uh, came to be very clear was that they were all running very fast and the uh, request for the speech came in to the leader, and the leader um, kind of forwarded the email to the director with pretty much no context, no nothing, just forward here, deal with this. They sent that to the manager, and the manager distributed it to the analyst in some sort of dominoes falling way. No value add, just like bang, 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 as if the person, the analyst receives this email that essentially is just like the four signature lines in a row from people's email. And then at the bottom, there's, we need this. <laughs> there's absolutely no value add anywhere down the chain. So the analyst did the best they could with no context, no clarity about what was at stake or who this politician was or what, you know, what healthcare looked like in the city that they were going to be speaking in and what the particular, nothing, just here, take a stab at this. And they worked really hard on it and they sent it to their manager. But then the manager, it was late at night. And so the manager made a bunch of changes and forwarded it. So the politician had it the next morning, but never cycled back to say, here's what was good about it. Here's what was missing. Here's what needed to be added. And so Time after time after time, they were getting work that they felt was subpar, judging the team and doing nothing to change it. So the U essentially, if you picture a U and now picture it having layers horizontally, like layers of a cake and say that that leader of the whole team, when she forwarded that first email without saying, here's where this fits in our priorities, um, here's what's going on politically uh, for the minister right now and, and what makes this important or what the watchouts are. She abdicated her responsibility to give that high-level important positioning. When the next-level director didn't say, here are the key precedents that need to be included in this, here's what's sort of in scope for this talk and out of scope, that director was abdicating his responsibility. And each layer down, we can think about how there is, should be value add. And if there isn't, all we've done is set up the next layer to disappoint us. 
The reason the you has a left and a right is to convey this concept that if we don't add the value proactively, if we don't add it as we are planning and delegating work, then what we have to do is add value after the fact. And that's the manager after hours changing the brief, writing it until midnight, which is what they were complaining about was their workload and how they had to work on all these things at the last minute. So the you helps us to have a conversation with different levels in a department saying, here's the value that you can count on us to add. And here's the value we're counting on you to add. And here's when you can demand that we add that value for you. And if we do that, then here's just the very light touch that we'll add in reviewing your work or monitoring or governing it, but we'll shift the emphasis to not waiting for you to disappoint us and then fixing things that went wrong, but setting you up to succeed and avoiding all that conflict. So the U is just a really great tool. And in The Good Fight, I take you through all the instructions about how to do that with your team and how to talk about it. But essentially, what leaders are doing most of the time is setting people up to disappoint them by abdicating their responsibility for you know, setting expectations, contextualizing information, setting the thresholds and helping people understand the guide rails. You know, most of the time managers moving quickly are failing and abdicating in all of those ways. And it's so unfair. And then on the back end, it's just all the nastiness of this wasn't good enough. I'm giving you a bad rating on this. Even though you worked on this all night last night, I'm making you go redo it. Just all the ugliness that comes when we fail to set expectations well up front. So when you look at that, because often I'll be in a meeting and I'll have a leader from a team saying what they want and I'll have junior people on my team or younger people, younger colleagues, and they're saying they're just nodding. And then part of what I'm capturing is, you know, everyone's about to leave and I just say, oh, whoa, I just want to stop us. And I'll look over at the younger colleagues and say, are you absolutely clear on what you're actually going to do? And they just nod. And the senior leader's looking at me like, why don't we all just leave? And I say, well, like, what will it look like? Like, what's your actual output that you're going to deliver? And the problem is most of us ask the first question. And the first question, just skip the first question from now on. Because when you say, are you absolutely clear on what you need to deliver? Basically, what people feel like is their two options are lie and say yes, or tell you they're stupid. That's how people perceive the answer to that question, right? So just skip straight to the second question. Okay, how are you going to tackle this? Um, what's the thing that you're most worried about? What will it take to get this done by in the timelines that they've asked for? Ask open-ended questions, and you're much more likely to get a sense of where things aren't clear than giving them this awesome option between lie to me or tell me you're stupid. And you you nailed it right there, right? Because the, I mean, we want to ask the questions that would later be conflict points, right? So, hey, this person just asked you for this. I'm here. I'm your boss. So if you're going to have a priority fight, have it with me in the room. So, hey, they just asked you for this. How long is that going to take you? What priorities are on your plate? What will this do? to? Because they're not going to say that to a boss on another team. But if you give them permission, what priorities might this displace? And then I can look over at the person on the other side and say, hey, you just heard what they said. These are the things that would have to move. You and I are both senior leaders. Can we agree on what on that list should or shouldn't move? Because if it's for my boss, 
we're not moving that, right? So let's both agree because my boss is your boss. And so you're having all those healthy conflict questions. Okay, now that we've agreed on you have the time to do it, what do you think it looks like? Like, what are you actually going to give back to the two of us? Yeah. So you just neutralize a whole bunch of conflicts that were going to happen. And so that's, and I mean, that's going down this side of the U is we're just clarifying, clarifying, clarifying. This is the output. This is what it's going to look like. This is when it's going to get delivered. This is what it's going to take. And now that person's leaving and they feel seen, they feel heard, they invested into the timeline. So it's not like we arbitrarily gave them a timeline. We asked them what worked. And and then we also know, because you can say to that person, hey, I if they're delivering at that time, I won't be here. So you're going to, it's going to come straight to you just so you know, right? It's not going to come through my review. So it might, might need a little more work. Or if you wait two days, I can get eyeballs on it. And then that expectation is set. So you're not griping when you receive it and have to put some effort into it. Cause you said, okay, you know, if I had a choice between two days sooner and me needing to do some editing or two days later, and it coming to me in better shape, I chose two days sooner, and I'm okay with that. The only other thing I would add to that conversation to neutralize a common source of conflict is where should we escalate? So the other thing we aren't clear with people about is where they should escalate, when they should not try to handle it on their own. And two things happen when we don't clarify the criteria for escalating. One is we have some people who want to be our heroes and want to show us that they're the best employee ever. And then they hang on to things, even if they're in trouble, they hang on too long trying to save the day and look like they've got everything under control. And that's a bad thing. Then we get surprises. The other thing is we get the person who's the opposite, who doesn't have a lot of confidence, who doesn't feel empowered, and who comes tugging on our pant leg every 10 minutes. But what about this? And but what about, is this okay? Is this okay? And so if we include it in that left side of the U, talk about, okay, and, and as long as you know, you're functioning within here and here, keep going, you make the calls, you decide. But if, uh, you know, if we get outside of that zone, if something, if this pulls in a VP or above from a different department, that's when you need to let me know. If this gets two or more days off track, let me know it, right? So including in that upfront, what should we be expecting in terms of when to escalate? That's another really useful thing to add so that you're not getting angry with them either for coming to you on things that you thought you had delegated to them or for not coming to you on things that you really needed to know. Yeah, I I just love this tool and definitely something I'm going to be communicating to the leaders on my team to make sure that, hey, when we're giving people on our team work or we're working with other teams, let's take it through the U, right? Let's take it through the U and make sure that we're, we're setting everybody. Because like you said, we, we use the term a lot, but you have to do it is setting everybody up for success. That's the goal is you don't want to set your, your team up for failure. So I'm cognizant of the time. So I want to fire one last question at you, but it's, it's definitely a little bit of a meaty one. And so it taking straight out of your writing, when it comes to conflict, one of the things we see is what's good for one member of a team is bad for another. Without the right forum processes or language to move through the conflict constructively, many people shut down. Unfortunately, the issues and animosities don't go away. They're just bottled up. And so that's what we see, right? We see everyone walking around with tension and anger. And it's, you know, what's that when people say it's like a, like a bomb and someone just needs to light a match? It's a tinderbox. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, tinderbox, right? It absolutely is. And then it just takes one little thing. And the problem is the little thing, the straw that breaks the camel's back, um, ignites the whole thing. And people are like, what? Like, what? And actually, it wasn't about that thing at all, right? It was about the months of feeling not respected, not valued. You know, then it all explodes. But it wasn't about the thing that actually, because all it takes is a, you know, a spark at that point. You're like, how did that spark create that explosion? You're like, well, because it wasn't just about that spark. It was all the unresolved conflict. And, and so what are some of the forms, processes, and language that we need to have on our teams so that we don't get to the tinderbox stage? Yeah. So that's what I really tackled in the final, the third section of the book, right? was how do we make conflict into a habit instead of an event? And so the you is a great conflict habit, right? How do we do a better job of setting expectations up front? The TARP, which is, we haven't called it that yet, but the TARP is the exercise where we define what are we each fighting for and how are those things in tension with one another? Then in chapter nine, I share, you know, conflict strategies to do what I describe as like sprinkling a little conflict, like challenging assumptions or looking at things from different stakeholder lenses or talking about the implications. So, um, you know, the whole back half of back third of the book is really focused on these core team processes we can use to make sure that the you is about neutralizing the vast majority of conflicts by setting clearer expectations. The TARP chapter, chapter eight, is about um, normalizing these productive tensions. And, and I would say, you know, healthy teams go around the table and say, have we thought about this from your unique perspective? Have we thought about this from your stakeholder? So it can be a deliberation tool using the TARP as a deliberation tool. So there's all these techniques. And then, you know, the middle of the book, chapter six, is called Conflict Strategies for Nice People. It's got six different ways that when we bump into one of these uncomfortable things, we can use either the two truths or we can get at what are the root causes that if facts don't solve fights, what what's this fight actually about? So there's a whole bunch of techniques, but essentially they all fall in this category of how do we think of conflict much more like much more like a habit, much less like an event, much more like flossing, much less like root canal. And the book is just chock a block with technique to kind of make these high frequency, low impact, healthy, productive conflicts on your team every day. Yeah. And I, I found there were, were so many of them, whether it's kind versus nice, getting off the sidelines, how to disagree with our boss, how to clarify expectations, add some tension into the mix, or encourage productive conflict in meetings. So there was so many good tactical ways to tackle it, and we don't want to give away everything for free. So the good fight, have a read. You've heard a long chat about conflict today, and there's great tactical strategic advice for how to deal with it in Leanne's book. Pick up a copy now. Leanne, thank you for joining me on The Pursuit of Learning. I really appreciated our conversation today. Thanks so much, Clint. Thank you for joining us on The Pursuit of Learning. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and head over to our website, thepursuitoflearning.com, where you will find our show notes, transcripts, and more. If you like what you see, sign up for our mailing list. Until next time, your host in learning, Clint Murphy. Clint Murphy.